Well, you are back, and uh, but you were also back, really back to Latvian politics because you were in the European Parliament. Um, I'm looking forward to talking to you about that, but you very focused on international trade as part of that. And then uh, even earlier when I got a chance to know you is when you were Minister of Foreign Affairs of Latvia from 2004, from 2007, so you've done the foreign, policy, the defense and security policy, the European policy, and there is so much to talk uh, about. But uh, Dr. Prabhu, welcome, and let me be the first to say, if no one has said it, Happy Europe Day today. <laughs> Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. You know, thinking of Europe Day, the 15th anniversary of Latvia joining NATO, we were here a few weeks ago. Uh, celebrating that 70th anniversary and NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg gave an extraordinary speech to the joint session of Congress. I even walked over to look at the accession protocols of Latvia and signing that 15 years ago. Could you have imagined that 1,400 NATO forces would be in Latvia today? Well, we were dreaming all the time about that. You were dreaming so, of it? Well, if I may remind, Please. actually, that was a little bit uh, maybe uh, harsh to say in those days, but uh, when I was first time a defense minister in Riga conference, uh, and that was something like 2000, uh, maybe 11, uh, then from podium I told that uh, we are looking forward for German boots on our ground. And at that time, people, of course, were thinking, what, what the hell is this guy <laughs> telling? And that then, was controversial, I'm sure. Well, and then three years later, we have a German boots on the ground, a little bit more to the south in Lithuanian yes. soil, and actually everybody's happy. We have Canadians and eight more nations there, including United States. So, I mean, we always welcome friends, and we always will send away those who are not friends. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, I just would welcome any reflections you have on the NATO 70th anniversary. Um, and boy, we are now looking ahead and thinking about the next time NATO leaders will gather in London in December. Um, it's been a little rocky uh, for NATO, uh, I think, in adjusting to a U.S. voice that was really going to insist on defense spending in 2%. Um, but Latvia has a good story to tell on 2%. Share your thoughts on where NATO is today with enhanced forward presence uh, and where you would like to see it go. Okay, well, first of all, if you are speaking about enhanced forward presence, I think it is basically a duty uh, of an organization which is committed to defend each and every of its member against any kind of aggression to guarantee that there is not only a political will, but also a practical capabilities of that union or that organization to act when the necessity comes. And uh, Latvia and other Baltic states and a number of other countries which have been joining NATO a little bit later, now we are 15 years in NATO, of course always have been reminding about that, that look, even if everything looks peaceful and even if somebody is still remi reminding about those books which uh, appeared not to be fully true, like uh, Fukuyama's End of History, uh, we still would like to see that uh, security and security guarantees uh, across all the NATO territory is spread equally. So uh, I cannot uh, fully um, explain our membership of NATO to Latvian 
or Lithuanian or Polish citizens, if they see that uh, maybe NATO members in Portugal or Spain or France can feel more secure than NATO members in Latvia uh, or Lithuania or Poland. So security must be equal. And that me means, of course, that there must be a specific jobs to be done, practical jobs to be done, uh, in order to guarantee that, which includes also the necessity, if there is such one, for um, um, additional troops from other countries, if we require that, uh, to be on our soil. And in that sense, uh, enhanced uh, forward presence, which in Latvia is comprised of a, not a large battle group, about 1,500 soldiers from other countries, led by Canadians, but there are uh, larger contingencies uh, from armies of uh, Poland, of Spain, and some other nations. As they are there, we are happy about this. Uh, actually, Latvia is a very great place for other country soldiers to be, because this is a good food, good nature, uh, society is very pleasantly receiving them, so it's a really very friendly issue. But we have to remember that this is in order not to have crisis. And the most important issue for us, of course, is deterrence. Deterrence to anybody, hypothetical or not hypothetical, possible aggressor, because uh, we believe that uh, we must, and the best deterrence is to say that, look, if somebody is trying to joke with us, if somebody is trying to exercise on us the same, um, let's say, um, approaches, like what we saw in 2008 in uh, Georgia, or, for instance, uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine, including the annexation of Crimea, that will not go through in the Baltic states. And uh, if I have to say about the mindset of the Baltic nations and Latvians, then we have been learning bitterly from our own history, uh, which is 1939. At that time, we were a little bit hesitant to defend our borders only for one reason, because we had a mighty superpower at that time, or large power against us, and we saw that we can save the lives of our men and women uh, in order, uh, by, by the peaceful opening of borders uh, to aggressor. Obviously, that did not work. Today, I can with great confidence tell that if somebody is willing to cross our borders, we will shoot them. And uh, if we will shoot them, then we also believe that those who might try to do this, they are not stupid, they are smart. And we can then have a meaningful understanding with each other. Because actually, if we, if we here speak, for instance, about such, such um, uh, hypothetical uh, aggressive move from the Russian side, then um, uh, I think that it's not so much about Baltics even, or Latvia. Because we have been always a litmus test for the Russian political approach to the West in large, to the transatlantic relationship in large. So if many things, what maybe some of you are experiencing either in, uh, in North America or in European countries, we have been experiencing for quite a long time. So for us, it's nothing new. The problem is that sometimes we have been speaking about this before, for instance, Ukrainian war, but we have been not always receiving a um, um, listening ear for those warnings. Now, bitterly enough, it appears that uh, the right was on our side, that the things that we have been telling to our partners were correct. So um, I think from that perspective, I think we are a good example and we can share also our knowledge about cyber attacks, about fake news, about strategic communication. And just before we go forward, I wanted to, I wanted to mention one more example why we think 
um, um, with a little bit of pride, of course, uh, that we notice those issues a bit earlier, because if you are looking, for instance, what kind of uh, excellence centers do we have in all three Baltic states, then in Estonia, we do have an excellent center for cybersecurity, because Estonians were the, the first, first ones, ones in 2007 to, to be attacked in a cyber attack. So they understood immediately what we have to do. We have to turn this power around and, and start to develop this. In Lithuania, they have been frequently meeting, you know, uh, inadequate energy policies from Russia, because we in the Baltics, like in Latvia, we pay for, for Russian gas larger price than Germans. Russian gas doesn't have a market price, it has a political price. Germany is much further away, we are a neighboring country, we pay more. So Lithuanians understood this, so there is an excellent center for energy security. We in Latvia have been meeting uh, different types of uh, media influences organized from our neighboring country. We understood quite early that if we are not tackling communication issues, then uh, simply minds of free liberal democracies, of, of democratic countries, can be easily corrupt because the goal of such kind of uh, news and, and, and information warfare is simply to make people doubt societies, values where they are living in, and once you doubt yourself, you are losing the strength. You don't need any more tanks because you will not resist, because you will not be, you will not be willing to stand for those things which are important. So, as an answer to this, we have a NATO Excellence Center for Strategic Communication, which have been assisting now a number of countries within the EU, within the NATO, and outside. So, I think that is, a, that is really an example how actually we can turn our uh, geographical or geopolitical disadvantage into the advantage for many others. So, do not hesitate to use our experience. Um, just to pull it from your comment, were you frustrated? Was the Latvian government frustrated that I know for many years, even when I was at the State Department, we heard prescient warnings to say that Russia could take these steps. And, and I think for large measure they were ignored or we said, we understand why you feel this way because of your terrible history, but you should not be afraid, nothing will happen. And then events happened in 2008 and they happened again in 2014. Is there some frustration that you were not heard? Well, of course, there is sometimes a frustration because we already know the old, uh, old Roman saying, beware of your friends, with enemies, we will manage ourselves. So our problem frequently have been, you know, to go and talk to our allies, if you speak, and I speak here more about European allies and not all, of course, um, and trying to explain them that, look, uh, situation should not be assessed through the pink glasses. And I think those who has, have been uh, familiar with political science, uh, they know what is the difference between wishful thinking, the ideal state of a Greek pattern, what Plato or Aristotle was writing, and about uh, Machiavelli, who is the first uh, political scientist, who actually was describing not an ideal state, but was describing the status quo, the situation which really exists. We, as a borderland, of European Union, we as a borderland of the West, we as a borderland of NATO country, we don't have a pleasure, we can't afford to think within the concept of illusion or wishful thinking. We have to be realists. Just like soldiers or officers, once they are assessing the possibilities or capabilities of their regiment, troops or, or units, they, they have no right to think in a 
in a wishful way. They have to precisely know what they can do and what they can't do. So in our case, the price of wishful thinking would be an existential threat to our country. And we understand, of course, those who didn't hear us frequently was because, you know, uh, for them, such type of crisis, which is of existential threat for us, uh, would be just uh, maybe a smaller crisis, like a little bit less jobs, a little bit smaller uh, growth rate of GDP or something like this. So it's frequently, unfortunately, the situation where those which are fed well do not understand the hungry ones. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think in five years since the annexation of Crimea, we've <coughs> seen where NATO has made impressive strides in the land component with the battalion in Latvia, in Estonia, Lithuania, of course, uh, a strong presence, a U.S. presence, particularly in, in Poland. We wrote a report a, a, a year ago that said that what we felt that what was lacking was at the air component. And we had thought that perhaps the Baltic Air Policing, which has been a very successful program since you joined NATO 15 years ago, is it fit for purpose in case it requires an air defense component? So just, and again, as you return to the ministry, what strikes you as some issues where you want to focus and strengthen both Latvian resolve but as well as NATO's deterrence? Well, if we want to guarantee to all NATO citizens uh, equal security, then of course we equally have to assess also all the threats what different places in, 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 in NATO are um, seeing. And of course, if you are looking to the Latvian or the Baltic case, yes, we are paying 2% from our GDP for uh, our defense. And uh, in this regard, we are in total agreement with the United States' quest that also other countries should do this, because why should somebody else defend you if you are not ready to at least, you know, lock your door once you sleep or, or buy a small insurance for your car? I mean, it's understandable. So in that sense, we are definitely on, on, on the U.S. side. Um, but looking from our personal perspective, we are still a small country, and, uh, uh, and even if we are a small and democratic country which wants to pay those 2%, it would be very difficult to um, guarantee everything what we need alone without being a part of this organization. And yes, we do have a still a lack of uh, air defense systems because our budget is not so large. We would be very happy to have on our territory uh, middle-range rocket systems, Patriot systems and, and, and such, such um, things. As far as air policing, yes, this was a great success. We are grateful to all those nations which are sending their, their planes to guard our sky, uh, to guard our common sky. But uh, there is still a lot of things what has to be done. And <clears throat> if you are looking, for instance, to our uh, military budget and, and, uh, and those 2% what we are spending, I think we have been quite rational how we were using this because we do have a um, traditionally 12-year plan how do we develop our armed forces? So that means that uh, we know what we will uh, be willing to buy or acquire in five or six years, and we have this priority list. Once the Ukrainian war started in 2014, uh, maybe we had to readjust some of the points. Some priorities were moving from number five to number three or vice versa. But in general, we, we knew and there were no surprise. Not all, actually, NATO countries has such an approach. but. Even by knowing this, uh, our budget, since this is not a very large budget with 2%, is already uh, planned until 2027. 
So basically, we don't have almost spare money until 2027. And uh, being a border region, it's very difficult to wait a very long time until we can get uh, uh, air defense systems in place. So this is one of the issues what I was also preaching here in Washington now in these days. And of course, we also would be willing to have uh, larger uh, military assistance, financial assistance, and we can ensure we really can ensure that these finances and monies that we could get, for instance, from the United States would be used with a purpose perfectly and, and, and increase our combat capabilities. I'm sure every Pentagon official is extremely envious that you know where you're going and what your budget looks like to 2027. Um, let me talk, we've talked about land, air component. Let me talk about the maritime component because Balt, Baltic Ops, uh, Balt Ops is uh, going to be ready again annually for this June. Um, in general, help us understand what, what you have learned from the series of exercises that have occurred both in the region, and they're, they're continuous, but also last year's uh, Trident Juncture. Uh, uh, tell us what your reflections are on sort of how we're exercising and, and, and what we're <coughs> learning from those exercises. Well, first I would like to say that, for instance, um, uh, for, uh, enhanced forward presence group of, of these about 1,500 soldiers from other um, NATO countries in Latvia, they are not something separate. Because of the training and, and, and uh, exercises together with Latvian armed forces, we basically could see them as a very good integral part of all our defense system. So they can act in a unison if something is happening. So the major goal, of course, for, for all such type of exercises, uh, probably if I have to say what is the major goal, it is really a territorial defense of our country. We don't have there such forces that we can pose any kind of a threat to such countries as Russia. So we frequently hear, and those who are uh, more friendly or falling in the trap of Kremlin propaganda about, about uh, you know, NATO forces now being stationed forward and uh, aggression, I would say these are simple lies, so don't fall for this or either you are yourself spreading fake news. Mm. Because if you are looking how uh, Russia was developing their own capabilities, their own maneuvers, their own presence near our borders, near NATO's eastern borders, then it, for last 10 years we could see that, that, that they have a much, much larger scale of presence there, maybe one to ten, if, if, if not even more, with, uh, com um, uh, with sophisticated weaponry and with uh, aggressive type of military exercises. So uh, I would have always, for those people who, who preach that we have, we have some too much forward presence uh, and which is endangering Russia, I would then tell, look, I mean, if Russia was increasing their presence at our eastern borders for last ten years, what did they think? There will be no ever response for our side for this move? So we would stay silent and just observe until you are doing everything and we stay just like a, a peaceful uh, bird, you know, without any kind of defense? It's impossible. So such type of exercises, like you mentioned, basically it serves our territorial uh, defense. It serves um, to bring uh, understanding between uh, NATO nations together about how can we interact because we must understand each other, we must communicate with each, with each other, we must know how to, how to act in the event of crisis. And then there are a number of other issues where, for instance, on the sea, you know, we have a 500 kilometers coastline and we have experiencing in our past two uh, devastating world wars. Our waters are still full with mines. 
and we have to clean also these waters. So frequently also in such occasions we are also improving environment, we are, we are doing this job and I think what, what our international troops also from uh, these nine nations including Canadians and US is doing in Latvia is, is a great thing because they are diplomats. They are uh, in perfect contact with our societies. They are assisting in different social events and they are greeted by our communities uh, in, in smaller or bigger towns. So there is a really a very nice interaction. And I would like to mention one last example on 4th of May. I actually have been saying a big thanks to two US soldiers who have been in their free time going on train and suddenly they saw a person with a seizure and this person would die if there would not be these two soldiers who could know how to help until ambulance was coming in the next station. So it's a great thing and we have to popularize that. But on the other hand, we see also how the fake news are frequently spreading, that whenever something happens where you can see some maybe a, a drunk person or the street or something like this, then uh, some controlled Russian media will immediately spread this news, how these NATO occupiers of the Baltic countries are misbehaving. So we have to, vigilant, to be vigilant about this and be aware about this. And one of my, my um, purposes also by touring here in the United States, and, and actually I came here from, from north, from Canada, is also to make Canadian and US societies aware that uh, we are living in a small globe. We need this transatlantic tie. We need to work together. And if you are waking up in a peaceful morning, it still doesn't mean that there are no cyber attack on you, that there is no fake news around. If we, as a litmus test, fail, if we fall later or earlier, you might fall as well. So let's, let's stick together. No, it's, a, it's important, uh, important comments. Um, let me mention, uh, talk a little bit about Belarus. There was some concern after the Russian <coughs> Zapad exercise in 2017 that there could be some permanent Russian basing in Belarus. Um, certainly, I think if I read the news correctly, there was even a suggestion very recently that President Lukashenko would perhaps come to Riga. Um, help us understand how Belarus, a potential shift in Russian posture, could directly impact Latvia as well as the eastern flank. Well, um, Belarus has a direct border with such countries as Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. And uh, if we are seeing the more, let's say, dark scenario, what happened with the attack on Georgia, what happened with Ukraine, then um, we can't exclude that uh, Belarus could be on the radars of uh, future more increased, let's say, Russian activities. For us, of course, uh, Belarus is a um, highly important uh, country because uh, we don't want to have uh, any trouble on our eastern borders additionally. We understand that Belarus is already very, let's say, deeply integrated in uh, Russian military planning. Their presence is over there, but there is still a certain level of uh, Belarusian sovereignty. And I think and our message, if we would ask again us as a troublemakers or as a litmus test what to do, I think we should um, do maximum uh, efforts uh, in order to keep that uh, still existing Belarusian uh, sovereignty alive. Uh, can we do this? What are our limits and what are the details? That is another uh, discussion or question. But um, 
we can't exclude that uh, if we do not act or, 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 or try to influence the situation, one day we, we can wake up without Belarus. I want to turn to one aspect of hybrid warfare that it's outside of your area of remit as defense minister, perhaps as deputy prime minister, you have a little more uh, whole of government uh, interaction. CSIS has spent a, a great deal of time focusing on Russian malign economic influence and how it works. And we've really seen where money laundering, uh, illicit financing has certainly uh, has, a, has, a, has struck Latvia, it hit Estonia with the Danska Bank, it continues to hit. The government and the Prime Minister has made really strong statements that this is going to stop, this, the corruption of this. How do you put that in a security context? How does the Defense Ministry think about drying up sources of Russian illicit financing or money laundering? Because that weakens Latvia and it also helps other uh, adversaries continue to do what they shouldn't be doing, either North Korea or what have you. No, certainly. Well, uh, first of all, uh, there are a number of third countries for different purposes uh, and for a long time have been using a lot of banks in a lot of Western countries. Yes. Uh, so there is not, in my view, a very huge difference between uh, banks in Riga uh, or banks in London or banks in some other cities. It happens. Uh, yes, um, we have been noticing such activities in some of the Latvian banks. We have been in very close contact also with our partners in Washington and I think in this case we probably will be among the uh, first nations uh, in the European continent or first nations in the European continent which will give a good uh, example how we can manage the situation. So it's not exclusively something what could happen through, through Latvian banks. I think we can see that there have been involvement, you mentioned yourself, the Danish bank uh, presented in Estonia or there could be a Swedish bank and something else. But on the other hand of course we have to be also a little bit careful about about understanding of all these flows of monies because uh, the situation and information exchange between countries is also changing. So the things that we learned about this, for instance, this or last year, we did not know before and nobody knew that. Uh, so I think we have to create some kind of a similar system where we can act within the Western world together, either it is North America or it is also European countries. But in our case, I think we will do maximum efforts simply to, to safeguard, um, safeguard our banking system and make it transparent and clean as possible. And we hope that other nations will join this because um, if we do not do it in a common unison, then there is no point simply to do reforms in such countries as Latvia and not to do similar reforms in other countries. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like whack-a-mole. You dry it up in one place, it will find another home. We have to, to, to eradicate it. Before I sort of move from the Russian challenge set, and I want to move into European politics, the upcoming European Parliament elections, have you put your former hat on. I want to talk a little bit about strategic communications and, and Russian uh, information, disinformation influence. Are you seeing an uptick as we get closer to the European Parliament elections? Uh, are, are there any themes that uh, Russian outlets are focusing on? You know, Latvian politics is a very rough sport. Um, and I'm just wondering if that disinformation space works uh, very much within your, your, your political uh, system. Well, actually, uh, I would like to say that um, we are relatively relaxed about that because we know what to expect. 
And uh, we will uh, expect and there will be a similar pattern in Latvia like it will be in all other EU countries which will experience elections on 25th of May uh, for European Parliament. And to understand this, uh, we have to first try to figure out what could be, let's say, the possible purpose of um, different Russian, let's say, media or information campaign activities uh, with a we European Parliament elections. Uh, I think, and this is my hypothesis, that uh, Russia might be interested uh, to see European continent, European Union and Brussels and also European Parliament to be more fragmented. If it has it more fragmented, then of course the decision-making is hindered, European Union tends to be weaker, and that automatically will increase the possibilities for Russian political, economic and any other influences if we are simply speaking about this from the perspective of, of power struggle. So, from that point of view, I think we could expect a certain, probably limited, but a certain uh, interferences or support or any other kind of uh, media activities supporting any kind of political force in any EU country which is either far right but Eurosceptic, which is uh, pro-Russian, which is NATO-sceptic, which is, uh, is anti-American, uh, just name it. But it would not apply only to the far-right parties, it would apply also to the far-left and left-wingers, you know, to anybody who kind of is tired or skeptical about EU policies and also to any individuals. So in that perspective, I don't think that uh, um, they are specially differentiating uh, for uh, Latvian voters or Latvian parliamentarians. They have a basic spectrum all across Europe and they will look who are fitting into their interests, who might be their lobby or the supporter of the interests and who will not be. So I would say that in many ways maybe we are uh, better understanding this and better prepared in our countries than maybe many other uh, more Western uh, placed uh, European Union places. So we know about that, we know what to expect. If you ask me, we are not a big country, we would have eight representatives, represent I mean eight, eight, eight parliamentarians from our country in European Parliament. My estimate would be that uh, we could count maybe three, might be more falling in this, uh, in this group of um, uh, pro-Russian politicians mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I think the five ones will be quite fine. So I think it's, it's, it's relatively okay looking from our perspective. Are there any EU slash NATO countries that you're particularly concerned where this type of fragmentation and pro-Russian anti-West message is going to be very successful? We are not in the Chatham House rules I here and everybody's watching I'm, around. Everybody's and, watching. And you know, even if I like canon diplomacy, I still, <laughs> I still have my experience as a foreign minister. Um, how should I put it? Because I don't like not to say things also. Mm. Uh, it can yes, be very general. Uh, uh, there, will, there will be such countries, but you know, um, what we have to understand is also that uh, sometimes I have a feeling that not everybody in Northern America is really understanding how European politics are run. And I think if we want a good transatlantic relationship, I think there should be deeper understanding about these issues, including there must be also understanding that, for instance, uh, um, trade is not done by nation states, it is done by EU, and you like it or dislike it, but that's an EU affair. So here, um, uh, 
there is a certain kind of a problem put inside uh, also uh, among the EU nations because you know so, soon we would have to adopt the EU budget and there will be a large struggle who is getting what money and, and for what reasons they are getting more or for what reasons they're getting less and certain countries uh, or uh, certain countries with, with let's say um, different type of uh, uh, democratic uh, policies or understanding of policies uh, than uh, Brussels or in Brussels or in the West might be also punished just because you know they might acquire some more money in this budget so it's it's not only the question of Russian influences you know uh, I have a actually I have a quite large respect for for a number of Russian policies and activities because uh, the seed can grow only in that soil which is fertile if the soil is not fertile, you would not have any plant coming out. And obviously, uh, for Russian misinformation and propaganda, certain soils are more fertile, fertile and certain are less. And that's what we have to take care of. Um, thinking about uh, the EU, particularly as it continues to develop uh, PESCO, uh, we don't know what the full amount will be for the European Defense Investment Plan. Help us understand how Europe will, will grow its own security and defense identity and your own philosophy on making sure that there's complementarity with NATO and not competition. Right, well, I understand that in, in North America, particularly in the US, there's a little bit concern that PESCO might uh, be used as a way to turn away um, US military industry uh, and just, you know, promote more European industries. Um, I would like to say that this is, it doesn't look so dark. Why? Because first of all, uh, we, all are, we all are interested that Europeans finally start to spend more money on defense, security, and also on military industries. That's very clear. If I have been preaching about this seven years ago, um, then many our colleagues in European Union would tell, no, no, this, we don't have time for this, we don't have money for this. No, it looks different. Now there are starting to come a seed money for cooperation on security issues, for maybe some common purchases, for maybe some support for industries. So that's good. So far so good. What is more risky and where we have a good understanding of United States and Canada and other countries is that first of all, looking from Latvian perspective, we do not want that a common EU money is going into only few national industries, because we are not still one state, we are a bunch of states in the EU. So that means that also we Latvians would like to develop our part of defense industry, even if it's a small one, but if Europe is developing something, we should be a part of that. So we must have an equal approach once we are members of EU. Secondly, uh, we are caring about our capabilities, and I as a Minister of Defense have to provide my soldiers female or male with the best weaponry, with best logistics, because we are here risking with their lives. So nobody will be capable to force me to purchase just something which is not of the highest standard. Of course, with the prescriptions that I have money for this. So I'm not going to buy a European product uh, if there is a better product available in the United States. So we will strongly defend within this plan the right of our good allies to have a fair competition within this uh, network. So that's very clear. This is our position within the EU, and we have a voice as a 
nation, and each nation has one voice here. There is no proportional voices in this case. So uh, I think that um, there should not be so much worry about this. We will stand by that, and we are standing for transatlantic position. The best comes first. Absolutely. I'm just wondering, would love your reflections in thinking about the EU and its common foreign and security policy after Brexit, although we don't know when, how, what, who uh, that process will take. But I think this, this is particularly uh, felt acutely in Northern Europe. The UK has taken a, a broader role, whether that's the Northern Group, the Joint Expeditionary Forces, the JAF. I mean, there's, there's some ownership and leadership. It leads the battalion um, in Estonia. Are you concerned that the EU becomes a, a less uh, force and weight on Russia, sanctions, foreign and security policy if the, when the UK departs the EU? Well, will they depart? Well, well that I mean, is, I said, do I, they, we're, do they we're not entirely sure how and what the well, problem um, will look like, but I, I, I cannot we'll I, I cannot stop my irony because if I see that, uh, let's say, one of the oldest European democracies are struggling for three years, uh, let's say, with their identity uh, without uh, a meaningful outcome that's a bit hard to perceive from outside. But on the other hand, it is a very, very good example how easily uh, we can actually um, be misled either by our politicians or by ourselves if we are not uh, enough educated, if we are not following the policies. Paradoxically enough, uh, after uh, Brexit vote happened, British expressed much larger interest in the common security issues with um, the rest of the Europe. So that is a positive, and we really are very happy that they are the lead nation, like we have Canadians, they are the lead nation in Estonia. And uh, I have a quite strong belief that no matter how this, uh, excuse me, mess with Brexit will end up, uh, British will be uh, with us and we will be with British. Uh, as far as the Bre Brexit is concerned on a European policy level, yes, uh, earlier on we have been quite concerned because uh, in many ways uh, we in the Northern Europe, and, and I sometimes dislike even, uh, even this um, description of Baltic states or Latvia and Eastern Europe, and I can tell you why, because if you are looking to the map, and if you are painting Scandinavian countries going down to the Baltics and then you know drawing a line somewhere uh, at the coastline of Poland, Germany, Denmark and a little bit of Netherlands, then you can see that uh, our eastern border is not a centimeter on the map further to the east than Finnish eastern border. For God's sake, anybody here in the auditorium would like to call Finland an eastern Europe? So this is what I would like to say. This is a prejudice about something which is still inherited also in Europe. So uh, we are a Northern Europe in a sense uh, of uh, our cultural identity, of our food, of many other things. And we have been traditionally associated with Britain and also with transatlantic link. If Britain really would leave, that of course uh, would make influence of Northern European region within the EU policy a bit weaker. And this is what we would dislike. But since we don't know will they leave, because I mean, British will now vote in 25th of May for the place in European Parliament. So how the things will develop, we will see. So we are uh, still carefully optimistic about the British influences on our continent. Speaking of Finland, I need to come back around again. Uh, we've seen a, a real growth of uh, 
non-NATO members, Sweden and Finland, working bilaterally together in defense cooperation. We've seen the U.S., U.S.-Sweden, U.S.-Finland bilaterally, trilaterally, U.S.-Sweden-Finland both participated in Trident Juncture. Are, I, this has always been a sense of a NATO vulnerability of their non-NATO status, yet they are taking active measures to enhance their defense. Is there a, and I'm sure you've strengthened your own bilateral dynamics with Sweden. Well, and let, let's be honest. I mean, even if they are not a NATO country, if trouble will come to the region, Baltic trouble will be Swedish and Finnish trouble. So there is no way they can actually stay out. So if they can't stay out, they probably have to plan uh, all their security and defense uh, systems in alignment with NATO countries and with us, with the Baltics. So there's, there's no other way uh, out of this. Uh, of course, we can't influence their political decisions and their, their, their society's views on a number of issues. Uh, they have their own historic experiences in Sweden and in, in Finland. But um, I think as much as we can develop cooperation with the countries which are not NATO countries, and there are still limits, because I think that we can't go until the very end of this cooperation, because there is still, there is, at the end, there's still a difference. You are in or you are out. So if they want a full cooperation, they have to make the steps they should join. Uh, but uh, if we can uh, cooperate by, let's say, avoiding these lines, we will do it, but it will not be a full cooperation. So uh, from our perspective, we only would uh, enjoy if these countries finally would decide and, and join NATO, because NATO is not an aggressive alliance, not in the Northern Europe. It is an alliance which is guaranteeing freedom, liberty, democracy, and peacefulness in the North, North European region. And it wouldn't be bad if uh, Baltic Sea would uh, become uh, a democratic sea. I'm not telling a NATO sea, but democratic sea. Excellent. Before I turn to our audience, I have, I have one question. I want to sort of pull back out and think about the transatlantic relationship. When I think of Latvia, uh, as well as uh, Estonia and Lithuania, um, you know, in some ways it's, it's uh, Dixonian. It's the best of times and the worst of times. It is the best of bilateral times. Uh, there is strong U.S. Latvian ties, security ties, the conversations we're having, the visits in the White House. I mean, it's been very robust. That's the best of times. The worst of times, the U.S.-EU relationship, we talk about trade, we are <clears throat> deeply divided, whether that's Iran, Syria has continued to be a challenge. So the community that is so important to Latvia is, uh, is in a really uh, a difficult moment. How do you manage what I call the best of times and the worst of times? And what is your advice to, to Washington policymakers as you're seeing them, where everything's good bilaterally, but not so great at the transatlantic level? Well, I still have a number of meetings forward, so <laughs> I, don't okay, want I, to I don't want to lose them. All right. <laughs> well, um, um, how to put it? But do, you see, do you agree with my description? Maybe I'll yes, start I do, okay. because uh, our bilateral relationship, let's say, Latvia-United States, it's perfect. I mean, Poland-United States, it's perfect. Uh, so there is no complaints about bilateral relationship. But on the other hand, we are in a situation where we have, let's say, a triangle, there are three friends, and, and if I have a relationship uh, extremely good with a person A, and very good relationship with a person B, but they're both quarreling, quarreling with each other, how can we go for the common beer? It's a, it's a little bit of a problem. Yeah. And of course, we are suffering because uh, not, uh, 
not everybody in, 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 in Europe, um, let's say, understand uh, everybody in US and vice versa, because this is at the end hurting this transatlantic tie. And if relationship is not good at the end, it reflects back also to our security. So what we are doing, we are, uh, whatever we could do, we would like to be a, I don't know, mediators, assistants to, to, to make these things to work together. Because uh, if you ask for my advice, well, um, you know, you don't need always uh, to beat up your friend to make uh, foes to understand that you make are a strong point. person. <laughs> and I think that uh, there is a lot of truth um, in a description uh, that many international institutions, either it is World Trade Organization or many others, they are in many ways outdated. Uh, and we need to change the world if we have to fit for the 21st century. But then you have probably two possibilities how to do this. The one is simply to dismantle it and tell we have nothing to do with this. Or you can look around and gather your friends at the table and lead this reform. The problem is uh, it's not about Europe and it's not about uh, North America and United States. The problem is that we have a lot of uh, other countries around, including China, uh, which sees that West is not sticking together and uh, their power is immensely rising. And I think that if uh, somebody in the United States would like to counter such kind of influences, uh, for God's sake, you need Europe. I mean, and we need United States, we need North America, we can do it only together. So if you are looking also for trade deals, for instance, if you look for the modern trade deals, then if you combine the power, economic and trade power of North America, Europe, and you maybe add still Japan, then if you can make a common trade deal with this, that would be more than 50% of world. By doing this, we would create the legal system of international trade for the next decades. If we do not do this, that there'll be somebody else making international trade deals according to their understanding. And we will be too weak, we will decline. Do we really want to make the trade deals according to their understanding and not ours? So if we want to keep a power, the influence, our value systems, we rather be smart enough to move and not to wait. So if it's just like with rafting on the river, if you want to manage your boat, you have to be faster than the current, you have to paddle. So let's paddle together. Let's get out those oars and start paddling. Wonderful. Well, let me uh, turn to the audience, and I want to talk about Huawei. Maybe we can spin that one back again. Oh, good. We have lots of hands, but I'm very excited about. We're going to take a couple. Yeah, let's um, try. Let's try. <laughs> Absolutely. We've got a little time. We can do that. So, um, Holly, I'm going to start over here with the two gentlemen here, and then the one in the back, and then I'll move to the next side of the aisle. Please, and if you could uh, rise and introduce yourself, please. Thank you. Sir, my name's Howard Steers. I used to be a country director for the Baltics in uh, the preparation for NATO entrance. At that time, you were being advised that the key component was deployable forces and the old territorial defense structure was passe. Um, as an old Cold War warrior, remembering how we were planning on defending the inner German border with the German Home Defense Command, which was actually invaluable, I presume that that balance has changed a bit under the current circumstances. Could you talk a, a bit about the future that you see for home defense forces, the National Guard in, in Latvia? 
Oh, very good question. Thank you. You want, you want, to, want me to bundle them, or do you want to take them? One well, I can do it sure, immediately course, if course, you want. Um, uh, look, um, uh, our defense system is based on um, not large, but professional army, national guards, which are volunteers, and uh, then we have a reserve. Uh, if you want to know the numbers, then basically we are planning that our professional army would be in a size somewhere between six and a half and seven and a half thousand persons. So it's one brigade. And then we would like to develop our National Guard from the current uh, 8.2, 8.3 thousand to 12 thousand, uh, which would consist, uh, which would be four brigades uh, of, of, um, of um, uh, National Guard. Additionally to this, we can count on uh, on about 3,000 reserve soldiers, which we, we, we would call. And then we still uh, have an um, extended uh, education system for our use called National Guard system. Uh, with all this, we understand that this is not enough, uh, taking into account the geopolitics where we are. So what we are doing at this moment is that we are developing so-called comprehensive defense system in our country. That basically means, and, and I'm leading uh, cabinet meetings for, for, for um, uh, such an issue, uh, about once per few months, uh, that uh, we want all state institutions, ministries, is it a transport ministry or health ministry or education ministry, whatsoever, all um, industries and private entrepreneurships and NGOs to look to their daily work daily reforms, whatever they do, also through the prism of security and defense. What would be their reaction if, for instance, the worst happens, if the war starts? So by doing this, uh, we hope we will develop this system um, within the next few years. Uh, we will be much better prepared for any type of crisis, because we would like to have to the possible opponents see our country as uh, something, some small animal with a lot of needles, which is maybe a small one, uh, but uh, don't touch it. Don't touch us. We don't need anything else. We want to have a good deterrence. And as far as the National Guards, I think uh, they have been doing a great job in the last years, especially after the uh, Ukrainian war started, because, uh, uh, and we also try to enhance their activity. Because these are patriotic people which are spending their maybe every second weekend or third weekend, uh, not at home, but in military exercises. And uh, for those who are, uh, for instance, involved more than 20 days, per year in those exercises. We are also giving a financial assistance in a, in a size of um, a monthly salary per year. So some other different um, things are coming up. So um, uh, we try to use our um, resources of a small country very rationally. I think we're gonna call that Operation Porcupine. Yes, sir, right there. Uh, of course, there's no reason not to have a completely state-of-the-art, fully integrated uh, submarine uh, sensor system with your Scandinavian neighbors. And I hope that exists, or it should exist soon. My concern is along these lines, there's the sense that you can give the Russians a bloody nose at the border, and then you're stuck with partisan activities after that. But I think you can go even further, and I'm wondering why you haven't. And going even further means adopting the Swiss model. Every Swiss citizen knows how to break down and fire a rifle, establish an elementary intelligence network, uh, 
knows how to operate a radio and so forth. Shouldn't you, given your small population and, and the possibility that she could be overrun, isn't it time to cross that boundary and make yourself even more porcupine? Well, um, uh, yes and no. Uh, you see, uh, we still think that the current system uh, where we have the combination of professionals, National Guard, volunteers, uh, has not been um, fully exploited. I think that uh, before we think about any kind of additional reforms, we uh, have to really um, have, a, have to make a full use of that system, what we do have in gra on, on the place. And at this stage, I would say we still have a lot to do uh, within the existing system. Additionally, if you speak about you know, uh, compulsory military service in our country, it would be also, um, for the first years, extremely, extremely um, um, financially heavy. Uh, plus, you know, because of uh, heavy years of Soviet occupation, our mindset of our people are uh, kind of traditionally against anything which is uh, coming by force or demand from the state. So we rather rely on the volunteers which are patriotically organized and, and which want to take arms in their hands and to be really convinced what they are doing than simply to have uh, persons, you know, who uh, by occasion get the weapons. And actually, if you are looking to countries who have a, a compulsory a military service, Frequently, they, it's only on the paper. At the end, they are calling in only, you know, maybe 10 or 15 percent of of of, uh, of the use. So it doesn't work so so precisely. Sweden, I mean, uh, Finland, sorry, Switzerland, of course, is a is a very extreme good example. But again, we can adopt for our region and for our country a number of things which fit better to us. We cannot take one model and simply put it in another space uh, 100%. And what I did not mention, I have to mention now, is uh, we are introducing now a, a um, uh, state defense education in our schools, which will be compulsory in 2023. At this moment, we have about uh, 62 schools which are voluntarily participating in this. What does it mean? We will educate our youth in four major lines, starting with civilian defense and ending with military. So uh, the best of them will be able also to participate in different summer camps where they could be able to listen music and shoot with rifles and do things together. We will use our military bases for this. So we will prepare our youth for in the next five years for different type of occasions. It would be good professionally because if these people will like it, they might be deciding to join professionals. If they want to do some other business, but they are still feeling that they want to be associated with military, they could join National Guard. If they will do neither, and they will just work in a business or a state institutions, they will be prepared for crisis, capable to uh, take care of themselves and of their people and family around. So again, uh, we are carefully studying systems in such countries as Finland, Switzerland, Singapore, and a number of other ones, and we are trying to adopt the best model for us. At this moment, I think we are doing quite good in this track. A lot of things should be still done, but uh, I think the direction, just like with our military spending and plan for next 12 years, it's, it's on the place. So I think, I think we can be uh, carefully optimistic about that. Fantastic. Mr. Minister, I think we have one more question. I'll go right there. Thank you, Steve. 
Uh, thank you. Uh, Mr. Minister, Steve Flanagan from the Rand Corporation. Uh, thank you for those insights. I wanted to ask you, following up on the question of how Latvia and the other, your neighbors are dealing with the hybrid challenge, how do you assess the state of uh, European uh, cooperation among other European, with other European Union countries uh, on both a political and an operational level in dealing with the hybrid threat, political warfare, other kinds of Russian malign influence? And what, what more would you like to see in that domain? And what about the state of NATO-EU cooperation, which was launched a few years ago, uh, to enhance that, uh, that coordination because of this need for such a comprehensive approach? We worry a little bit that the well, military mobilization issue, which is a civilian EU side, that to make sure that we can rapidly deploy forces in mobility, across Europe yes. is so important. Well, you know, if I have to be optimistic, I would say a lot of things are changing and people are starting to understand in countries, EU countries, the need to cooperate more on security and defense issue. Either it is a Frontex or outside border, or it is internally exchange of information between intelligence agencies, or it is a mobility with construction. And this is what, what, for instance, in comprehensive defense system we are doing in Latvia ourselves. But of course, the problem is that um, we are still behind the challenges. And we do not have a unified approach across the EU. And, and yes, Commission, European Commission, have been establishing, for instance, this um, center for tackling fake news. But again, there have been only eight or ten people employed there, so it's a too small thing. Now, uh, lately, European Union and Commission have been um, creating a new agency or recreating an old one into the new one regarding the uh, scientific analysis of cybersecurity. Again, a good thing, but it will not be enough. So I think at the end, um, the push should come from the nation states anyway, because we must not have those pink glasses at home. We must do all the reforms needed to ensure our uh, <coughs> Uh, cyber security and, or, or media security in our own uh, uh, places and sites. And then we should share simply the best practices among EU and whenever we can agree on some common policies, uh, despite of fragmented EU Parliament and other institutions, we should push through this. But the initiative should come first of all with good practices and, and reforms in, in the nation states. And this is where we are lacking behind. Because we can't do it on, a, on a, such a general level. We are, not a, we are not even a confederation. Right. Yeah, I think that the messages of, of urgency, purpose, and, and getting outcomes, not just processes. Thank I you very much. That is the, we need well, to do better but, but here. This, well. is, this is, in general, the Latvian approach. Whenever we come uh, to analyze any suggestions within NATO or EU, because we don't want new institutions uh, just because of institutions. We don't want, you know, to, to, to have some documents just because there is some kind of requirement. We need efficiency. We need to see that this is really tackling a problem and improving the situation. If you can't get this proof, we will not support any kind of reforms, at least from our side, either in the EU or NATO. Well, I think that sounds like a winning recipe. Mr. Minister, thank you so much. What a great hour of great conversation, insights, and we look forward to having you back at some point to keep us updated on the Comprehensive Defense Program. And uh, thank you for being such a stalwart uh, ally in NATO. We're, well, we appreciate thank you, our partnership. And thank you to the United States for standing with us in the great times and sunny days. We will stand with you too. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking the Minister. Thank you.